and welcome to the weekly summaries of the Good Shepherd Bible Study. I am your host, Miller Ansel, the church planning intern. We are a Bible study and longing to be a church plant of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Southwest Houston. So if you're in Southwest Houston, we meet in Stafford at 3211 South Main Street in a church building called Grace Center. We'd love to have you out. Also, please check out our website at gsbiblestudy.org, as well as like us on Facebook at Southwest Houston Reformed. This is week eight in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're finishing up the last of the six illustrations that Jesus uses after uh, saying how he fulfills the law. And I'd like to remind us of what we said the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is about. We summed it up in two words, Christian counterculture. There is not much more countercultural ideas than do not retaliate and love your enemies. These things our culture uh, does not love and embrace, but it's what Christ has called Christians to do, but before getting to the retaliation and the loving your enemies, uh, Jesus speaks of oaths in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So a lot of this is an exposition of the third commandment. It's using the Lord's name rightly, um, as well as issues of the ninth commandment, not lying. We are to be truthful when taking oaths. For our listeners at home, another good passage to read in accord with this is uh, Matthew 23, 16 through 22, and Jesus uh, expounds a little bit more on the taking of oaths. Well, as we did last week, let's look at the Pharisees' perversion of this. One, uh, Jesus is not quoting an actual Old Testament text, as he has done in some of the others. Instead, this is more an amalgamation of various texts, or we might say a theology of oaths. So what he quotes isn't necessarily against Scripture. But it does seem that the Pharisees were perverting it in such a way that they would say, if you didn't use the Lord's name in the oath, you didn't have to fulfill it. A lot like how when we're kids, we uh, cross our fingers behind our back when making a promise and say, I don't have to fulfill the oath because I didn't, uh, because I had my fingers crossed. The Pharisees are doing something similar. I don't have to fulfill my oath because I didn't swear um, by the Lord's name, but I swore by the temple. I swore by Jerusalem. So Jesus then sums up the correct theology of oaths by saying, do not swear by this stuff at all. Now this is not a prohibition against taking an oath in a court of law. Uh, some Christians have taken it in such a way, but rather Jesus is saying, say what you mean and mean what you say, uh, that your yes is yes and your no is no such that you don't even have a need to swear, period. That people know you're an honest person. 
and there is no need to, to get a pinky promise from you or to, to swear on your mother's grave or something of that nature. So we learned several things from this oath-taking. One, um, we even have oaths because we're dishonest people. We are sinners, and so these pinky promises exist. Little kids learn quickly. Uh, adults don't always keep their word, and so they make us promise. But we should learn that truth is sacred. God is true. We ought to be straightforward and true. We shouldn't try to avoid uh, the truth by witty deceit. Christians should be trusted and known for being truth-tellers. And so we're not allowed to, uh, to swear irreverently. We're not allowed to swear needlessly or take an oath um, in some sort of disguise so that uh, we can go ahead and break it. We should also remember that we live quorum Deo, that is, we live in God's presence. So we need to be reminded that we shouldn't be living a lie in the very presence of God. The next topic Jesus covers is retaliation in verses 38 through 42. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's a ton of talk on this aspect of Jesus' teaching. Some say this is even the core essence of Christian teaching. We see this kind of in Tolstoy, uh, in pacifism, and Christian anarchy, and the such. But the point of the teaching here is to limit retaliation. It seems that the Pharisees were perverting this text in such a way that retaliation or vengeance was placed in the hands of the individual and not in the hands of the courts. That's the context that an eye for an eye is given in the Old Testament is to Old Testament court systems and judges. It's not given to each individual to exact justice and vengeance however they see fit. And Jesus gives four ideas for, for this with the Christian. One is to turn the other cheek. Now, this isn't so much a violent act as somebody trying to physically hurt you. It's more of uh, being insulted with a backhanded slap. Today it might be uh, libel or slander in the way that we slap others, but uh, the one who was slapped in the first century would take the other person to court. They have been dishonored. They need their honor restored. And Jesus said it's not for the Christian to have uh, one's dignity or honor affirmed by the courts. Jesus essentially says, um, let them insult you and know that your dignity is confirmed as a child of God. He's also essentially saying to show the attacker grace as our sins have offended God and yet our Lord is gracious with us and doesn't exact the judgment on us that we deserve. The second idea in this retaliation section is to give away your tunic, or your coat. Coats were a, a way of giving a pledge and they had to be returned by nightfall, Exodus 22:24, because they served not only as daytime clothing, but oftentimes as uh, pajamas, as bedtime clothing so that one could stay warm. And if the person didn't return the coat, you had a legal right to exact vengeance upon that person and retaliate. But rather, Christ says, do not stand on your legal rights. Let the person have your coat and let grace abound. 
In fact, the cost of a new cloak is less than the cost of the course of law to obtain that original cloak. The third uh, example Christ gives is to go the extra mile. This is the idea of Roman soldiers drafting citizens to carry their things for them. We see an example when Simon of Cyrene carries the cross of Christ. Uh, he was drafted by uh, the Roman government in order to carry something for them. And it could be quite humiliating for the Jews to go through this. But Christ says to, to go, the, go an extra mile. Um, of course, they weren't using miles, but they had so many paces they were to go. And he says, double it. Show them that you're not uh, only obedient to the Roman emperor, but you, in fact, have a greater emperor who is the Lord. And you are serving him. And so the Christian does the unexpected because grace has influenced the Christian so much to win others by love rather than to retaliate upon the basis of their rights. And the fourth illustration Christ gives, pretty simple, to, uh, to give to the one who begs from you and not to refuse the one who would borrow from you. So we can state his teaching here uh, negatively and positively. One is negatively that when we're subjected to wrongs of different kinds and our dignity is taken away and our rights are infringed upon, we are not to get excited um, and have vindictive resentment. Or stated positively, Jesus is teaching us that we should be generous and forbearing with others, even those that would inflict wrong upon us. Another great text to look at along with this is Romans twelve seventeen through 21, about not repaying evil for evil, that the Lord says vengeance is his and he will repay. But instead we are to be uh, overcome with good. Our last section is loving your enemies, verses 43 through 48. And Christ says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So loving your neighbor, this is a, a very clear-cut example of the Pharisees' perversion. Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament is it said to hate your enemy. Yes, it is said to love your neighbor, but not to hate your enemy. And the best uh, way we can spin this for the Pharisees as they might say, oh, well, Leviticus 19.18 is about Israel. That's our neighbor. But the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites, those are not our neighbors, and thus we hate them. But that's not what Christ teaches. Instead, he says we are to love our neighbor and to love our enemy. Uh, we see this very clearly in Jesus' own life. Uh, Luke 23.24, Christ is on the cross and asks for forgiveness for those that are crucifying him. We see it with Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7. Uh, he does the same thing, prays for the forgiveness of those who are killing him, uh, not to hold it against them. So we see uh, if anybody's an enemy, it's the one who is actively murdering us. And yet these two examples of our Lord and of Stephen show us uh, the incredible love that we can have for our enemy. We see Jesus concludes this section with uh, being perfect, that we are to be perfect uh, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Not that perfection can be reached by us, but it's the idea that 
Christians are to be extraordinary because we have an extraordinary God. Christian love is very different than worldly love. It is out of the ordinary. Uh, the Christian doesn't just love because we've been loved. And we don't just set our love upon the attractive people or the attractive objects. Uh, we don't love people just for what they can give us in return. Uh, it's very sad to see the state of the church that has sought to love others in this manner, to love others as the world loves, to be attractive to them, when actually Christ is teaching us that we uh, have a godlike love, and that is attractive. We don't love like the world, we love like the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we speak well of our enemies. It means we do good to them. It means that we pray for them. As St. Augustine said, many have learned to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. And we have to remember that God is our ultimate example in this, how he is perfect, how he loved us when we were rebels, when we were enemies against him, that the Father sent the Son to die for those who were enemies of the Lord. And yet Christ dies for those enemies to make them his bride. That's an incredible love. When all we could possibly have done was offend God, he still pitied us and loved us. And so may we love as our Heavenly Father loves. May we be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect.